when I was a kid, uh, I always like when it's time to move. <laughs> For most of us, the idea of moving house, particularly as a kid, is a pretty big deal. New friends, new school, new life. And even moving more than once isn't so uncommon. But for Enki, when she was a kid, she moved six times. Six times a year. I remember now, my brother and all this, we got excited when my grandfather said, oh, now it's time to move. Enki moved almost every two months. But for her, this was normal. And she wasn't just moving to a new town. She was moving to a whole new landscape. When we moved, it would be my grandmother and my brother. We would load our gear into the camel. And then we would also have a small ox cart where we put food. Enki was born in a small village in northwest Mongolia, very close to the Russian border. And Enki's grandfather was a camel herder. My grandparents had... uh, I think it's about 350, uh, some 350, 60 animals. Out of those 360 animals, about half were camels. The rest were a mix of cows, sheep, goat, ox and horses. And every two months, Enki, along with her grandparents, her father and her brother, would herd their hundreds of animals, sometimes upwards of 300 kilometres, to the next rangelands where they would set up house for the time being. And although this sounds nearly impossible, Enki says it's what her family was used to. My grandfather always used to say that while moving, you also have, you don't get animals to rush, move very quickly. So the animals just take their own time while they're moving to the next rangeland. However, that's not to say it was always easy. There is a big lake that got frozen in the winter. In order to make a shortcut to the spring rangelands, Enki and her family, along with all their animals, would cross this frozen lake. But one time when maybe it was a little bit warmer uh, year and so on, this lake did not get frozen very deeply. So while we were moving with animals on this lake, all of a sudden the ice starts to crack down. Because while we were moving with this very heavy cart with all the animals, like hundreds of sheep and goats, I got so scared that we're going to sink all together into the lake with animals, with my grandmother, with my brother. So I got so scared, I almost started to cry. And my grandmother said that I don't have to worry. And then because my grandfather had really thought about it, it will not be the case. The lake is frozen, there is no water so close, so we just have to move quickly and keep calm. In the village where Enki grew up, more than 90% of people were mobile herders. The other 10% worked at the local school, at the post office or the local store. The way of life at the time was mobile herding, where your livelihood was your animals scouring the rangelands for vegetation to feed your livestock. However, just under three decades ago, cracks began to form in Mongolia that would see mobile herders plunge into uncertain waters.
This is Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. Mobile herders continue to make up around 30% of the Mongolian population, and they remain scattered across the landscape, ranging from the steppes of the Gobi Desert to the stretching grasslands along the Chinese border. These wanderers have practised their own form of pastoralism for millennia, maintaining a strong connection with the land, of which remains unparalleled by any other agricultural practice across the globe. But mobile herders today face a number of challenges, including the exponential rise of livestock rates across the country, severe climate pressures, and battling with a system of governance that has tried to privatise a practice that for centuries has worked in the very hands of the people. But before we go any further, we need to jump back. Mongolia is interesting in that in the early 1990s, when there were economic shocks as Mongolia was transitioning from being a socialist state to being a capitalist democracy, people went bush, to use an Australian term. So people actually moved out of the cities and and returned to pastoralism, to grazing. Before the revolution, Mongolia was a socialist state. And although, as Enki might say, there were less independent freedoms, according to Jane Addison, research fellow from James Cook University... Under socialism, pastoralism was very, very much supported by the state. The state would pay for people to move. They would pay for trucks, for livestock to be moved. They would provide forage if it was a particularly dry time or a really bad winter. They would provide supplementary feed. All of the veterinary care was free. So herders didn't have a lot of choice during those times, but they also had a lot of support. As 70 years of socialism in Mongolia came to an end, the state pulled back from the pastoralist sector, offering greater social freedoms, but also putting an end to the subsidies and support networks that were once offered to mobile herders. And um, I guess now the thinking is it's capitalism, business owners are responsible for their own wealth and perhaps herders are, are seen in that way as small business owners under capitalism. I haven't heard that particular framing in Mongolia, but um, I guess that's the way capitalism sees people. With the economy crashing soon after the revolution, as Jane mentioned, many went back to the practice of mobile herding as they saw it as a safer profession. But with so many reverting to the rangelands all at once, this created new unprecedented problems. With more herders roaming the rangelands, Enki says the number of animals boomed. Now, over the past 20 years, the number of animals has tripled. Now we have 66 million animals. But according to the researchers, our rangeland can only sustain about 25 million animals. So this means that the number of animals has exceeded the carrying capacity almost like three times on average. What sort of livestock are we talking about? In Mongolia, we have six different types of animals. There's camels, horses, cattle, and also we have a lot of yaks and sheep and goats. So altogether, 27 million are goats, 18 million are sheep, 
half a million yaks and two million cattle and also half a million camels. Where before there was an understood system that herders had their animals and wouldn't look for numbers beyond that, now under a capitalist system of governance, there are no government regulations in place, no control methods when it comes to managing the animal population or determining how many is too many. With more than 66 million animals roaming the Mongolian landscape, the biggest concern is land degradation. More hooves, more feet trotting across the land, but also more mouths to feed, with more vegetation being ripped out of the ground. This also puts a massive pressure on the herders themselves, not only in terms of potentially damaging the landscape, but because of the animal boom, some now have upwards of 1,000 animals to look after. A thousand livestock to have your eye on and then also move from place to place. How is that possible? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Taking care of 1,000 animals like of six different types is quite the work. On average, other would have like 350. But this movement is also getting limited so that herders cannot move as much as they have to or as, as much as they want to. So this also affects the movement of herders. The problems that herders are experiencing has trickled into the livestock market. There is not enough market to sell the animals. We used to export a lot of animals to Russia, but now this market has more or less become stagnant. Due in large part to animal health. Animal health service is not the same as it was before. Because there are so many animals, it's also started to affect the quality of veterinary services. So there's outbreak of infectious disease like FMD. Foot and mouth disease and also tuberculosis. Has become much more frequent. So these are diseases that if to export animals, that animals has to be healthy. So one of the reasons is really that animal export has declined. And also being a landlocked country between China and Russia... And we also don't have many choices as well for in terms of export. The overpopulation of animals and competition for lands to pasture, according to the Green Gold Pasture Ecosystem Management Project, in which Enki is the manager, has found two out of five herder households live in poor conditions. These social shifts since 1990, some argue, have led to what is known as the tragedy of the commons. It's basically a social dilemma, and the tragedy of the commons is an economic theory, or sometimes a philosophy, that once you have shared resources and open access to those resources, people who are motivated by their own self-interest will lead to the over-exploitation of those shared resources. This is Bronwyn Dalton from the University of Technology Sydney Business School. It's a pretty pessimistic concept. It's a pessimistic concept concept because it's rooted in one particular discipline, economics, obsession with people only being driven by self-interest. As Paul Keating said, when in doubt, back self-interest, at least you know it's trying. The idea that shared resources will inevitably lead to these motivations of self-interest is actually in complete opposition to the mobile herder pastoralist practice itself, where for millennia, Enki says herders worked together, cooperated, shared the commons. There's a long-standing tradition that when herders are moving, their neighbours all come to help them. To dissemble the gear, to load the cart, to help herd the animals to the starting point, and even... And they would also offer you tea on the way, and we would milk our cows. 
and looking beyond Mongolia. Of course, we can look to myriads of traditional societies and, of course, our own Indigenous Australians that have always maximised the collective benefit which turns out to be a win-win anyway because it protects the resource. But we can't forget that we have demonstrated our capacity to do it in a Western context as well. We have really effective mutuals, not-for-profits, and social enterprises and cooperatives doing amazing things in managing resources very well. Bronwyn argues that the fault in the tragedy of the commons is that its principles lie in Western capitalist ideologies, including... Individualism, consumerism, competitivism, choice, all which have been bundled up nicely under this dominant ideology now, neoliberalism. And the great irony of neoliberalism is whilst it advocates that everything can be solved by the market through individuals exercising choice, it also argues that there's no alternative to neoliberalism. With so many historical examples of societies sharing the commons, for a place like Mongolia, is it not so much a tragedy of the commons, but rather the tragedy of capitalism? So do you see this idea of sharing common resources? Can it work in hand with deregulated capitalism? That's next. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. The concerns of rising animal rates and land degradation is generating a lot of back-and-forth conversation in Mongolia, some explicitly outlining the poor management of pastoral land due to herders as the main culprit. But some are contesting that the landscape of Mongolia isn't as degraded as what's being told. Back to Jane Addison. I think when I was first living there and, and working at the Mongolian Academy of Sciences at the Desertification Research Centre, I sort of took it for granted in a sense or just accepted the common narrative at the time that land degradation was really serious in Mongolia. But as my PhD began, I really struggled to chase up the scientific evidence related to the the degradation. Jane has undertaken a number of research projects regarding rangeland management in Mongolia, but for one particular project, she undertook a critical review of degradation assumptions, particularly when it comes to the Mongolian Gobi Desert. And for Jane, the work involved a lot of... Landscape condition assessments, which was very soil-based, soil and perennial vegetation-based. Perennial vegetation means it lives for more than two years. And I deliberately chose that particular approach because it could help me tease out what was natural variability. And what did you find? I found that it was in pretty good nick, to be honest. The vast majority of the plant species that were still there were highly, highly palatable to livestock. So one of the indicators of grazing facilitated degradation is that you have a vegetation community which becomes dominant by the species that livestock won't eat. So basically livestock eat out 
all the ice cream plants and just leave the Brussels sprouts behind and and they do well and they spread and so you have this Brussels sprout dominated vegetation community whereas I found that the Gobi was full of ice cream plants (laughs) so that suggested to me that the grazing levels hadn't been so high that there was no longer the forage resource there that livestock needed. Since Jane's research, a number of international projects followed, pretty much affirming Jane's original findings. New Mexico State University in the US worked with the Swiss Development Corporation based in Mongolia to do a nationwide study, also finding that the Gobi was in pretty good nick. However, they did find some areas closer to the capital, Ulaanbaatar, weren't in quite as good condition. But nonetheless, uh, in general, at the national level, things were probably looking a lot better than what we'd believed previously. Do you think it's damaging to say that land degradation is the result of pastoralism? I think it has been damaging. I think I think it can be damaging. But those landscapes have co-evolved with grazing by livestock. So arguably, if you remove people and if you remove their livestock, then you could well result in more degraded landscapes than if you left livestock and, and people there. These assumptions that the Mongolian landscape is degraded, Jane says, are not just dominant within the environmental ministry, but to a number of environmental NGOs and more broadly the local and international media. And it's these assumptions that up until this point have shaped policy responses and program designs. However, dealing with the issue of land degradation isn't so black and white, when half of the system is public and the other half is private. In Mongolia, the rangelands remain public access, meaning herders can go essentially wherever they please, within reason. But Enki notes that the livestock are privatised, where for herders... The herders have the private animals and they have the reason, they have the motivation to increase the profit, you know. Because in a market economy, more livestock means more potential to make money. However, in the 90s, with the advent of the market economy, Jane Addison says Mongolia underwent the process of privatisation, left, right and centre. There was a push from some international organisations to also privatise the the grazing lands. Um, There was significant pushback on that, and I think that's why we still have mobile pastoralism there today. And with the assumptions that the landscape is degrading due to being part of the commons... Is this narrative a ploy to privatise the rangelands? Has capitalism, or does it continue to use this idea of the tragedy of the commons as a means to privatise? Absolutely. It says that without ascribed ownership to a resource, over-exploitation is inevitable. So do you see this idea of sharing common resources Can it work in hand with deregulated capitalism? There are three solutions to avoiding the tragedy of the commons. Solution number one is market-based. At the moment, capitalism has decided that we have to have the market-based solution, which is take some common resource and ascribe it ownership to an individual or group of individuals. That aligns with the economic theory that people are only motivated by self-interest. 
And that's been the solution thus far, and that has seen, in essence, the rise of the 1%. It sends a concentration of ownership of, of what was commonly held resources in the hands of a few. Solution number two, governments take control. And you can assign ownership of a shared resource to government, whether it's a library or a defence system or a police force, and then they can manage the access in ways that doesn't destroy that enterprise or in a common resource, you know, national parks or fishery zones. But third approach has the most potential. Give the power to the community. And that is by ensuring you have a structure that, as I say, harnesses people's natural desires to work and cooperate with each other for the common good. But you have to believe that people are motivated and have those sorts of preferences. You know, sometimes governments say people would rather a tax cut than a public hospital. I question that sort of argument, but at the moment our systems are just pushing the tax cut point of view. This community approach to managing the commons under capitalism is exactly what the mobile herders of Mongolia are trying to do with the formation of pasture user groups. Enki is an advisor to the National Federation of Pasture User Groups and says PUGS, the abbreviation, are an opportunity for voluntary herder groups to meet and have their voices heard. But also, according to Jane Addison... Pugs offer herders a platform to push back against developments, or in the case of inevitable development, such as the opening of a new mine, by being part of a pug. This may help lessen the effect it has on their livelihood. If a mining company comes into a location where they don't have, where there's no sort of formal representative group, then it's very easy for that group to be forgotten about. So one of the arguments from a number of herders I've spoken to, their formal engagement in these groups, is that it then allows them this sort of formal representation to mining companies, to government, to other groups that may wish to be involved in a project or something involving land in their general area. Jane notes for years there's been an ongoing debate in Mongolia pushing for a change in pastoral law that would harness the power of the pasture user group, but it struggled to make its way through legislation. Much of this comes down to the differing attitudes of mobile herders today, with many eager to unite and partake in pugs to help push this legislation through. However, at the same time, there are many opposing the idea of collective action. Under socialism, herders were in collectives and didn't have a lot of control over what they could do. Um, So I think for some herders, there's that memory still of lack of control, and they might associate community-based natural resource management with that period. Mongolian mobile herders are victims of circumstance, where a new economic system has overthrown their way of life. And just as their eagerness to join a pug remains divided among the population, so do their aspirations for the next generation of herders. Many are pragmatic and say the next generation can't be forced to practice pastoralism if they don't want to. Others say it's absolutely crucial. Their unique agricultural legacy is quintessential to the wellness of the landscape. And some wouldn't wish mobile herding on the next generation at all. 
The fate of mobile herding in Mongolia, however, remains in the hands of a few. But unlike other democratic countries around the globe, Mongolia is in a unique position, where many of those in power who are paving the future for mobile herding have more to lose than just profits. Mongolia is one of the few really pastoral countries that has pastoral people in government. So many of them own livestock themselves. They have family who are herders. Um, They may have been herders themselves. I think that's quite rare that a government at that level is trying to grapple with land use issues that feeds so strongly into culture and that feeds so strongly into economy. And they're not removed from it. They're, They're really in there themselves. The power brokers are not divorced from the reality of land use. As a country, we're all trying to live in this new system that our country has chosen. Now I think I feel like what I'm doing now is really helping people like my grandfather to solve the problems they're facing. So (laughs) I don't feel very far away from my roots. That's it for Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to jump on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. You just need to search for Think Sustainability. We also have a website, 2scr.com forward slash Think Sustainability. Today you heard music from Blue Dot Sessions, Daniel Birch, Steve Mushrush, Frank Taylor and Lee Rosevere. Theme music by Joe Koning and a big thanks to Shane Anderson and Miles Herbert for putting up with me and listening to this story a few times. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>